0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's the end of the party conference season in the UK. Theresa May is going to give her speech later this morning. We're going to try and make sense of what we've learned in the past few weeks. Is Labour really now the centre ground of British politics and if that were true what would it mean for the Tories? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. This week I'm joined by Helen Thompson and it's a pleasure to welcome for the first time and I'm sure not the last Mike Kenny who is Professor of Public Policy here in Cambridge. And Mike, among many other things, has been working on a project about Englishness in British politics and English nationalism. And we're going to come on to that because the question of where the centre ground is is complicated by the fact it might be different in England than the rest of the UK. Let's start though with Labour and then we'll come on to the Tories. So I was looking this morning to see what exactly Corbyn said. He actually said we're now the center of gravity. And I know it's a vice of academics to get hung up on semantics, but that's slightly different than being the center ground. But also that that Labour is now the mainstream, which again, is not quite the same thing. Helen, do you do you buy any of that?
1: Not necessarily, in the sense that, if you look at the, where the parties are at the moment, they're pretty much equal with each other. We have two parties who look like they command more than 40% or around 40% of the vote. And it hasn't moved much since the election. And it hasn't moved much, since, hasn't the moved much in, since the election. And if you look at all the woes the Conservatives have had since the election, I mean, let's just start with the fact that they're a much less united government or at least that they can't control their divisions publicly in the way which they could before the election. That's quite astonishing, really, because you would expect a party displaying this level of internal disunity and basically practical incompetence about a number of matters not to be at 40% in the polls. So I think to say that Labour is in some essentially dominant position in relation to the Conservatives and is able to set the political agenda in that sense, that, that doesn't make sense. I think what you can say... Is, is that Corbyn has moved himself into, not the centre ground, but into competitive, let's call it, mainstream politics. Whereas a year ago, he wasn't in that space, and Labour wasn't in that space.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that the thing that's changed, and what I take him to be saying is, in a sense, they're not the centre ground, but they've sort of become the default, that he now feels, and I think he might be wrong about this, he now feels that when people are really sick to the back teeth of the government, and that always happens... They don't have a problem now of thinking that Labour is where they go, which is the conventional thing that happens in two-party politics. But like Helen says, a year ago, that seemed impossible. Labour was definitely not the default a year ago. Everyone assumed that if people were sick to the back teeth of the Tories, then they might go to UKIP. They might not vote. Some of them might vote Lib Dem. And Labour assumes that it has become the magnet for the
2: disaffected. And I'm not sure I think that, I mean, the claim about being the kind of vehicle for disaffection, I mean, in in a way, in a way, I think there is something to that in the sense that what Corbyn has done is effectively position himself and position the party as something that does speak to a, a wider range of opinion, actually, than was the case one year ago and certainly when Corbyn first emerged. And in a way, the election does confirm that there is a coalition of sorts there to which Corbyn can appeal. And I think there's been a slight broadening of that. And it is also true that he has become a figure who's basically been remade in the terms of a conventional politician. He wears a tie, he speaks differently. There's a sense in which he projects in a way he did not some while ago. But at the same time, what is very unlikely, it seems to me, is that the claim... That public opinion is moving their way. I think. I think there's a sense in the speech he gave that people are somehow coming over to Labour who would not have been interested previously, and I'm not myself convinced that that's necessarily a very deep realignment. Secondly, of course, what Corbyn's speaking to is something that is perhaps out there, which is a shift on questions of redistribution and attitudes towards the state and public services. I think there's some evidence, actually, that people do feel a little bit differently about some of those questions. What he doesn't speak to is another dimension of popular sentiment, which is about identity, belonging, security? I mean, on those kind of questions, it's not at all clear to me that Corbyn is at all near to where the the kind of sweet spot is in terms of British public opinion. So let's come on in a second,
0: because there's been some really interesting polling recently about people's attitudes, and what I think it shows is just how fragmented, actually, there isn't a centre ground, because people are all over the place, basically. But something we talked about a lot, and Helen and I have discussed a lot, The assumption of the centre ground is that there's a kind of spectrum in politics. It's a classic assumption. There's maybe a left-right spectrum, however you understand that. And most people congregate around the middle. And so politics is the prize is there for the person who can sort of get close enough to the middle to pull people over. But there's so much evidence now that the traditional divisions, the binary divisions of British politics cut in so many different ways. And if the divides us, we've talked a lot about the generational divide. If it's old and young, it's not clear that appealing to 45-year-olds is the way to draw in the old and the young. Or if it's education, because again, there's lots of evidence that if you want to predict how people are going to vote and you only had one question, maybe the question you should ask is, did you go to university? And that will tell you a lot. might tell you more than how much do you earn or what gender do you identify as. But there isn't a middle ground in that either. So if the division is, did you or didn't you go to university, is the middle ground people who thought about going to university and didn't, who dropped out? You know, is it people who left school after it? It just seems to me it doesn't make sense. And that's something that we haven't really kind of factored into these discussions. Middle ground conversations are are old politics.
1: It's not easy to see how either party expands the coalition that they've got for the reasons that you said and there seems to be some kind of structural conflicts almost in place between different sets of interests. I do think though we should factor in two ways in which actually Labour is moving itself, not moved itself out of the centre ground or taken itself out of what has been centre ground competition let's call it that and the first is is the tuition fees issue because essentially it is accepted that it's going to play an oppositional role in that and that there's a great deal of political advantage to be had. And I do think if you wanted to tell the story of British politics and say, why has it become more divisive over a range of issues? Why is the polarisation taking place? One of the explanations is, is the fact that the politicisation of university tuition fees has played a significant role in that. It played a significant role in the 2010 election and Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats promising to abolish the fees and then reneging on it. And if you look at the two really big changes on higher education policy, they were both done on a bipartisan basis, the first introduction of fees and the 9,000 introduction fees both parties would have done those whoever had won those elections in 97 and in 2010 now that's been blown apart and there's an awful lot to be said from Labour's point of view of hanging on to this position because if you're looking at not just the students themselves but their parents this is an enormous amount of money that we're talking about.
0: Okay so just to be clear because then there are two different ways of thinking about this so there are things that might be done by either party and that's one way you could say this is a centrist position what Labour is doing is doing something that Like you say, blows apart bipartisan consensus, but it almost certainly appeals to a broad range of people. I mean, it's like they may be right then. They are the new centre ground, they are the mainstream, because the bipartisan consensus, and you've said this before, right, had moved to the edges.
1: I think that that is the one possibility that they have for extending that coalition further, the more that corbyn is taken seriously such that more people whose interests are affected by tuition fees and i don't just mean the students i mean their parents mm. too might consider voting labor but i do think that is dependent on the second thing is, is that corbyn has turned himself in effectively into a celebrity mm. he's not a normal politician in the way he wasn't a normal politician for the center ground before he's not a normal politician now he's kind of had this personality created in some sense around him rather than necessarily by him. But he's simply the political phenomenon now. He's working outside the normal ways in which electoral dynamics, I think, in this country work. And now that's the potential for that just bubble to burst. But at the same time, maybe it's got more mileage in it.
0: So can I quote back to you something you said to me, as it were, off the record? And if you're not happy with me quoting this back to you, you're going to have to tell me to cut this out, which is the reason that Andrew Adonis and the yeah. Blairites have been hammering away at the tuition fees issue is because they have spotted that otherwise Jeremy Corbyn's going to be Prime Minister, which for them is the worst-case scenario.
1: I did say that, and I do think... Are you happy with me quoting I that back to you? You yeah. saying, quoting me, back to you? I am happy with you quoting me back to that I'm not saying that this is necessarily true, but I think there's a lot in it, and I think that it is quite striking how systematic the attacks on universities and tuition fees have been this summer and who they are coming from, because it has got the potential to put Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. Now, there's many other things that could intervene and stop that happening... But you just think of that sums of money that are involved, If you're, particularly for the parents. you know, If you're looking at three children going to university, you don't want them to go into debt. That's £27,000 over three years. That's getting on for £100,000 that's on offer if you've got three children in a university bracket. I mean, there's, no, there's been no tax cut offer like that in British electoral history.
0: And it could then back up Corbyn's claim to be the mainstream in that if the Blairites and the Tories are attacking me on this issue, it's because they recognise I'm the threat the thing that for 20-30 years was the mainstream of British politics and I'm going to blow it wide open.
2: I think there is a difference isn't there between developing a sort of policy offer and I agree with with Helen that, that, that there is something kind of totemic about as well as in fiscal terms really big about that. uh, So big that when Corbyn's asked about it, he just gets that sort of (laughs) eye-rolling look. Exactly, because, you know, why do I have to cost us that? But I think actually that is one of the ways in which he has actually, during the election campaign, increased the sort of social coalition, the appeal, into the sort of parents and people sort of further up the age scale and also I think they did harden there, or, or they made themselves more appealing to the kind of graduate precariat as well for people who've gone through the university system who may not yet have university age kids so there is something there about broadening but at the same time the concept of the middle ground doesn't get you I think into understanding what Corbyn's about and how politics plays out. And it is partly because there are these deep divides which are incredibly structuring of our politics. So, part, you know, as, as you say, university education, I would argue, feelings of national identity, other kinds of quite fundamental attitudinal differences that are just incredibly difficult for any politician to triangulate around and to work with and bring together in something that looks like a middle ground platform. So, you know, this is a politician who, yes, has gone mainstream in certain ways, but has actually, oddly, some of the language I thought of the speech did reflect a very Blairite perspective on politics, curiously. I mean, it's clearly, that's the key point of reference, is a form of politics that thinks about triangulation in that kind of way. And it is not clear to me that that's the right way, actually, to think about politics now, which is much more about making offers that reach across divides and hoping to win some people. Yeah, and one or two commentators who were there
0: said, oh, these, this Labour conference reminds me of the glory days of Blair because it's really tightly managed. But you saying that, it does make me think, actually, the sort of graduate precariat, as you call it. You could, one way you could think about bridging those divides is, okay, it's not a large group, but people who went to university and aren't seeing the benefit. If you appeal to those people, you actually have a pretty broad appeal because the not seeing the benefit part of a whole range of social and political conditions is something that people can relate to. And there is at least a possibility that that totemic issue is something even for people who aren't part of the offer get the point.
1: I think that that is is true and I know it goes something against the first point that I made about the difficulties of expanding the Labour coalition. I think that the point that reinforces the difficulty is, is although in one sense Corbyn is doing triangulation, he's really terrible at rhetorical triangulation. He just doesn't know how to talk the language that appeals to people who don't fundamentally agree with him. If you listen to his speech it's a lot of assertions. Now Obviously, politicians make assertions all the time rather than make arguments. But, you know, one of the gifts, and I would say one of the few political gifts that Tony Blair had, was that actually he was able to make arguments starting from the place where people who disagreed with him began and then try to bring them into his argument. And Corbyn just doesn't have that ability at all.
0: And even if you say it's one of the few political gifts, you can go a long way just with that gift. It could be the political gift. We need to talk about the Tories. Because... We're at the end of this sequence of speeches and conferences. And the Tory conference has been in the last few days. But between Labour and Tory, Theresa May gave a speech in defence of quote-unquote capitalism, which, as one or two people pointed out, is an odd thing to be defending. It's not clear that there is a lot of mileage in just standing up for capitalism. You need to stand up for things that people care about. Not many people care about capitalism. But there was, and we all looked at this, a really interesting report from the Legatum Institute, The report itself has a political agenda behind it. So we need to bracket out the report and we'll we'll tweet the link to it if people want to read it. It's definitely worth reading from the polling data. A lot of of polling data about attitudes. It's really striking where there is a consensus. So I knew that there was a consensus and people often say this, Corbyn's policy about nationalising the railways is very popular. Turns out people don't just want to nationalise the railways. They want to nationalise pretty much everything, including water, but the banks, the nationalisation of the banks is an issue that is popular across most of the divides of British politics. So on the one hand, you have that. Corbyn is clearly speaking to something that is broadly popular. On the other side, austerity is still quite popular. Most people still accept the basic, I suppose, George Osborne argument that we've sunk some costs into this and there's no point in bailing out now. Austerity needs to continue. And then people are also on one of the questions that I'm paraphrasing, and how these questions of phrase really matter. But giving people a choice between personal freedoms, that is the freedom for people to do their own thing, and security and order. People are overwhelmingly in favor of security and order. Now, it's really hard to kind of map all that together. But the one takeaway I took from that is the thing that's being squeezed is liberalism. I mean, if nationalizing the banks is very popular, and order and security is very popular, then what people sometimes think is the centre ground, which is liberal democracy, and we haven't mentioned them yet, they got nowhere to go. It's all very well for Vince Cable to do his kind of go back to your constituencies and prepare for government. And it may be that is the consequence of 2007, 2008. The thing that's been killed is liberal democracy. There's a big question.
1: I think it's very hard to unpack all this really interesting data that there is in that report for a number of reasons, but one of them is is what does liberalism mean in the economic context? Because there seems to be, and this seems to go across demographics, including the age demographic, a very negative attitude towards capitalism and free markets. But is it actually free markets that people don't like? Or is it the way in which markets are, which are more like cartels. Often. Yeah, they
0: don't like greed. I mean, if you had to yeah, say one thing they, they don't like, like, they don't. They really want the state to start cutting down Absolutely. corporate pay. Everyone yeah. wants that.
1: And so is it that they don't like private companies running water and gas and electricity, or is it that they don't like cartels doing it? The questions don't go anywhere no, exactly. like that. No, but I- so it polarises into kind of like, OK, they're rejecting free markets and capitalism, and then there, it looks like they're rejecting... Liberalism, but it's possible that actually they would be in favour of more liberalism, but they want the state to play an active role in upholding that So liberalism. what the
2: Germans call auto-liberalism. It is a really interesting body of data. I suppose I mean, one question is where does this come from? You know, How far back do we need to go to understand those shifts? And I think you're right. I think clearly 2007-2008 is, is part of the story. I'd go back even before then. And it does seem to me that part of what you're seeing there is a new pattern of sentiment that comes out of, you know, I think can be linked to globalisation, broadly put, and, and the feeling that globalisation has not been managed in the right kinds of ways. I also think, I tend to agree with Helen, that it's hard to know whether people are really responding there talking about the consequences of certain kinds of market behaviour or the dysfunction or state failure, rather than... You know, the the at, general principle, yeah, rather than yeah. anti-capitalist feeling plus and it is very striking when you see people lining up behind nationalizing utilities or the banks the data suggests there is some quite interesting differentiation there and you know younger people who are not not necessarily outliers on that but are clearly quite particularly keen on that idea and it left me thinking well of course those are people who don't have any particular memory of what actually nationalized industries or cartels were like and in a sense it's a very it's almost a kind of exotic idea that that is sort of dragged out and sound has an appeal I suppose what I think is there in that data is a signal that for many people not just young people the rules of the game feel like they need to change. But they're they're rigged. I mean, they're rigged. And that sense of they're rigged and and the markets aren't delivering on the kind of promise of pro-market ideas. I think there's something there. But it does seem to me that actually it is also interesting to note the point about austerity, that there hasn't actually been a massive shift away. But do you think those things are connected? Because that's the big
0: puzzle in a way, the austerity question. And that's where Corbyn has misunderstood something. Because it's possible that people still have internalised, maybe from Osborne or others, that... Part of the point of austerity is to kind of expose the rig nature of the system. A kind of a leaner system has less room in it for this kind of fixing. I mean, that may be right, may be wrong, but there might be a connection in people's minds that one of the things about austerity is the implication often that it does. You know, when the tide comes in, it exposes the people who, as bankers say, were swimming without any clothes on. That that's something about austerity, which is a disciplining of the system. Do you think people possibly still believe that?
1: I don't know, but I do think that they don't like large amounts of debt. And I think that that is the sense that the state's finances are out of control is something that was a strong belief after the crash
0: and that feels a bit like a con or a trick I mean yeah. that that's you know, whether it's debt or high corporate pay or whatever yeah, exactly. but it's sort of it's money out of control and austerity is bringing money back under control I think
1: that the, the problem for the Labour Party and this is where I just think that there's a continuity between the problems that Ed Miliband had and the problems that Corbyn now has is there is this view that took hold in the Labour Party that there was this thing called neoliberalism that was responsible for the crash in some sense and then that the issue of Britain's fiscal position was simply an issue that the Conservative Party used to attack Labour and that Labour could effectively say, look it's mad to say that we're responsible for the crash and austerity isn't the answer to that our spending on the NHS had got nothing to do with that and I do think that they misjudged the fact that actually the electorate had a little bit of a more sophisticated or the majority of the electorate had a little bit more of a sophisticated approach to what had happened than that and they divided the two things up. They said there's the crash and that's the banker's fault, and then there's Britain's finances, and that's the Labour Party's fault, and that the idea that you you simply could conflate the two together and say nothing to do with us, and the, the idea that Labour could shift to the left on redistribution and say at the same time we're going to be an anti-austerity party, miss the fact that the electorate made a distinction between those and two And that's really helpful, issues. because that,
0: in a way that does make sense of how people can both want to
2: nationalise the banks and continue with austerity. Yeah.
1: It's, I not, think, it's not an irrational position. I think there
2: may well be connections between the two. I think it's really interesting to look at it through the perspective of the Conservative Party, because what strikes me about the conference and the very recent period for the Conservative Party is a sense... The sort of spread that the conservatives are quite spooked by the perception, that in a way that they're sharing that kind of older Labour story about this, of believing that the public has suddenly abandoned tenets that it held to in the previous period, and that's not how I would read that polling data. But it is interesting that that seems to be how many conservatives are reading it, and so hence the kind of felt need to justify capitalism and kind of extraordinarily abstract terms, when actually a much more effective appeal at the moment would be to talk in really quite concrete terms about what the Conservative Party could offer to people, particularly people who look as if Jeremy Corbyn has sort of found a way to their sweet spot. I mean, I, I think as well though, what's interesting is that for the Conservatives, actually Theresa May is both a huge opportunity and a real problem in relation to these kind of perceptions because Theresa May, when she initially became Prime Minister... Her very first statement and the kind of attempt to think about a greater state intervention to resume the sort of Joseph Chamberlain legacy picking up those ideas. That actually looks like it could be the kind of political strategy that would work for yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, so my like,
0: feeling reading this data is it, it maps onto that. It's yeah, it's law yeah, and order, but yeah. it's also statist. It's the
2: game is rigged. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's where she,
0: public opinion is. It
2: does look like it speaks to it. The problem is it's now associated with the one figure with whom they cannot continue. So it's a really paradoxical position for them. And all the energy within the Conservative Party is talking around free trade and the sort of attempt to sort of float a vision of Brexit, which actually is very much in the deregulatory, smaller state sort of mode. So I think it it does present a real problem for them, actually, because, you know, who are the other figures in the Conservative Party who can speak credibly to that kind of agenda? There are not a lot of people. And
0: it is ironic that that manifesto, that notorious worst manifesto in history, was sort of trying to reflect back to people in a (laughs) sense what some of this data reveals. And yet, it did it in such a cat-handed way and it also may be true that when people get a reflection of the incoherence of some of their own positions they don't like it.
1: I think that's true and I think one of the things that's really clear is is that an ironic about this election that we had is is that on the generational question the conservatives actually tried to get on the side of it where you'd think that they would help their long-term future i.e. by siding with the young rather than the old over social care and it almost certainly was the one single thing that cost them the election.
0: Yeah because they can't compete with Corbyn. One more thing about that polling, actually two things. I said liberalism was in trouble, but not social attitudes to various traditional liberal questions. So attitudes to gay marriage, LGBT issues, and so on. Unquestionably, the British public have moved in a very socially liberal direction. It's almost like that's been taken out of the game in a weird way. And that's possibly also difficult for both main parties. They can't play on that. The other thing is that the authors of the report then tried to divide the it up into five categories and people are doing this a lot trying to find you know the sort of where are the nationalists So leave aside left and right where are the nationalists one of the things that they try and do is people optimism versus pessimism so they have as the largest group what they call optimistic centrists which is still only i think in their thing 28 29 yeah. so certainly not enough to win anything but it is striking. and I think it reflects the attitudes of the authors of the report. They're coming from a certain sort of conservative right perspective, which is to want to say actually still the biggest group is people who believe in the market, because what they mean by optimism there is people who still have faith that without government intervention, without heavy handedness, without cracking down on disorder, things will be fine. And actually, I see what they're trying to say there. But when you look at it, Most people don't believe that. I mean, okay, there are more of them than there are of the nationalists and this and that and the other. But you put the other groups together and the pessimists win.
1: And also is is that the British electorate is presently constructed. Those people are in each of the parties. I know that they were identifying as centre-right in the report, but I think you could recognise them as conservative voters, Liberal Democrat voters and Labour voters, the Blairite kind of Labour voters. So they have never mobilised in no, a politics. would be a
2: grumpy, optimistic
0: centrist.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I think the point about liberalism is very interesting in relation to that kind of data, partly because, as you say, there, there is a sort of, over time, a sort of liberalising effect around certain issues. And it's interesting on gay marriage, because, of course, you know, that was, in the fairly recent past, a really hot political potato within one of the main parties. But that does look as if it's sort of just drifted into being a position on, on which there's no energy. But at the same time, I think what is also happening here is you've got the there's a kind of economic dimension, which that data picks up, but also the same people who feel angry about the banks and are or say that they're up for greater state intervention. So look as if they're leaving moving left on that dimension, also are the same people who are according to that data, more authoritarian or more socially conservative in their attitudes. Now, again, how new that is, I'm not so sure. I think that tracks back actually into the 2008 and probably before, I think, into the 1990s. And I think those two long-range dynamics are actually the two dynamics that are remaking the sort of patterns of popular belief, really, which are then having this kind of unpredictable effect on politics. So it's not just about corbyn thinking everyone's moving to him it's also people beginning to think or feel along this different kind of dimension around identity about belonging and where that goes and how politicians speak to that is now just a huge question here and elsewhere
0: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So let's just pick up on then that question about national identity which is part of this British politics is complicated politics everywhere is complicated we'll talk about Catalonia next week I think but one of the things that was said by the person who seems to have had the best week at the Tory conference who's Ruth Davidson Um, she gave a good speech a lot of talk about she's exactly what they need one of her lines which was among other things a straightforward dig at Corbyn is that British politics has become too London centric so that's another of the divisions which we sometimes talk about there's London and the rest. There's London and the rest. There's England. It's not clear that the centre or the mainstream in England is the same thing as the mainstream for the rest of the UK. You've looked at this, studied this a lot. How do you see that playing out? Where are we with mainstream politics when it comes to national identity?
2: Because nationalism is is definitely part of what's shaping these new divides. I do think that the the patterns we're talking about in terms of popular attitudes, do work quite differently in different parts of the UK. So in terms of England particularly, I mean, it does seem to me that the growth of a greater sense of English self-awareness, I don't myself use the term English nationalism, or at least I would only use that about a portion of people, maybe 15-20%, but a greater sense of, of an interest in English identity, an awareness of it, and maybe some sense that this carries political overtones. I think that has is something that has grown discernibly. One of the things that that is, I think, defined against is actually London and the perception that London has sort of grown beyond all any sense of control and that that's the place where political power, economic power, financial power are now kind of hoarded and intertwined in a way which feels like it's put the UK out of kilter. So I think in England, that's one of the kind of both the drivers and the things against which people react against, which again makes the the challenge for Corbyn, who is very much the kind of mindscape of London, makes it incredibly difficult in terms of breaking out of the coalition that he has built, moving further into the Midlands, into the north of England, those kind of working class communities, is incredibly difficult because of the kind of tribal politics he projects. And I took that to be what Ruth Davidson (laughs) was saying.
0: If it's true that the central thing, and as we've been talking, I've been thinking more and more that this must be right. If you want to understand people's attitudes, what they don't like is rigged politics. I'm sure people have never liked rigged politics, but it seems to have kind of come to the surface recently because of financial and economic conditions primarily. So two ways in which the UK might be rigged. One, London sucks up power, money, wealth, everything else. Second, The story that we used to hear, which is that Scotland gets a better deal and that that would be what would drive English nationalism, this idea that somehow the English were subsidising
2: the Scots. That doesn't seem to be so prevalent, or is it still there? I I think that is still there, and I think there's a long sort of historical story there about English sensitivities to the position of Scotland within the UK. you can see it even in the 18th century, the, the feeling that the Scots are not bearing their share of the debt is this a very apparent phenomenon. So I think there are elements of this that, that are actually quite continuous and are latent. And obviously, at the 2015 election, the way in which the Conservatives stumbled across that, that was not going to be part of their game plan. But when they found that actually putting Ed Miliband in Nicola Sturgeon's pocket had this extraordinary effect upon English voters, that they found their way to that particular pulse. I mean, it's true that that isn't at the moment, that isn't at the surface of British politics. But I think something else is going on actually in the speech. I think Ruth Davidson is also talking to her English Tory colleagues, because what's been most striking, particularly around Theresa May, is the revival, actually, of a very unitary perspective upon the UK in the context of Brexit, which is actually a bit of a shift from Cameron and and the way in which he tended to approach thinking about the UK and, you know, they got the Scottish referendum wrong. But there was a degree of sensitivity there to the different parts of the UK and the need to achieve a balance, which is so far rather absent, actually, from Theresa May. And I think Davidson is also saying to her English Conservative counterparts you need to understand that Scotland itself needs to be sort of managed as we go through the Brexit crisis. because in a way Ruth Davidson's responsible for that the reason Cameron
0: was sensitive to the different parts of the UK is because the Tories had no presence in Scotland and she has made the Tories look like a UK party again
1: I think though it is more complicated than just the English reaction to Scotland. I think that it's obviously extremely important in 2015, but I do think that was dependent on a particular set of circumstances and that was the position of Labour in relation to the SNP and the fact that there was a the prospect of a Labour-SNP coalition of some kind that wouldn't have had an English parliamentary majority. Now, the reason why that argument didn't then play in 2017 was because at the beginning of the campaign there was no possibility of anybody believing that Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister and that was in part to do with actually with the SNP's success at the 2015 election in effectively wiping out Labour and parliamentary terms um, in Scotland. So I think that there's a kind of specific set of circumstances to do with the issues of let's call it the West Lothian question that can in certain circumstances really fuel English identity in ways that will determine an election like it did in 2015, but I think if you look at the long-term historical nature of English identity, it is much more to do with grievance against London. Than it is to do with grievance against Scotland. I mean, I agree that you can make this argument about Scotland and debt in the 18th century, but you could make arguments, or people were making arguments. The, the you know the barons who were you know signing the Magna Carta were making arguments about Englishness in London in the 13th century. So, it's a. I mean, that is a constant theme in English identity: is the sense that there is a court so to speak in london that exercises power against the interests of the country and it is something that is there for politicians to tap into i think the the leave campaign tapped into it
0: so that leads to my last question this is something that um a listener emailed me about and said could you please discuss whether sadiq khan is the mainstream now of british politics because from this person's perspective and others have said it too he's first of all he's popular but secondly, he looks like the politician who has a chance of kind of capturing a broad range of support that breaks through some of these other divides. But I know what you're going to say: the one divide he isn't going to break through is people's resentment of London.
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to see how a politician so, so associated with London can be that figure. I mean, I think I think in way Sadiq Khan is interesting though for these wider issues because. He is someone who is fairly sensitive to some of these questions. I mean, he has actually talked a bit about English identity. He's someone who I think has a sort of some recognition that Labour needs to actually start to tell a new national story. I don't think he's particularly knows how to do that. And I think actually being, you know, so concerned about his position in London and projecting himself to a London audience makes him very unlikely to be that person. But at the same time, it just sort of reflects the the wider problem for Labour. If who else is there that actually is capable of reaching beyond some of the sort of deep tribal divisions that Labour looks like it reflects rather than than it can break down and who is the person who literally speaks in a way that maybe reaches across those divides or maybe makes people feel that the party is not just about you know boosting its support in one of those
1: I think that's absolutely right and if you listen to the way that Sadik Khan talks about Brexit is very London centric That's his job. He's mayor of London, but he's going to carry on being his job. And the idea then that he can emerge as somebody who can articulate a a wider vision, if we like, to use that language. I mean, in some sense, you might say that Andy Burnham as mayor of Manchester is a better bet. I mean, he's not a particularly effective communicator. So I think that we're back to the sense of like, who is the politician in any of these positions who has got the the skill set? to mobilise a coalition that can work both in terms of offering material benefits, the kind of thing that actually Corbyn has actually found a very good position to be in in some sense where tuition fees are concerned, but actually can work in a more Blair-like way about communication.
0: We've got this far without talking about Boris Johnson, so now I'm going to say, but he has the problem too. So he, in his speech he said, again, paraphrasing the current mayor of London a lovely guy, but he's not a patch on the previous mayor, i.e. me, <laughs> People aren't seem to be worrying about that. I mean, they're worrying about him for all sorts of other reasons. But he I mean, he was absolutely, as mayor of London, the guy who was defending the interests of the city. So there's that resentment. And then Ruth Davidson has the other problem. So it, you know, if, if these are the two polls that the Tories are looking at, then Jeremy Corbyn has that problem too. He's the most London politician ever, apart from his shadow chancellor and his shadow home secretary and his shadow foreign secretary. <laughs> they're not just London, they're all North London. North London extends to lots of places, including Cambridge and Bristol and Oxford and Norwich and Brighton and parts of Manchester and so on.
2: It's not just London, but Corbyn's got that problem too. He he does, but I I do think actually that's why Manchester is interesting. Those places that are urban, they are like London, but also have a reach into other parts of the country quite literally, do make them quite important and interesting. And it, it is very striking actually how as these new mayors have been elected, and and even as other local authority leaders have become prominent, the, the Corbyn regime is extremely wary of them, that there is a real sensitivity about that, the idea that there may be people who emerge from these other geographical strongholds. And that's why they would be such a particular threat. And that makes me think,
0: why at the Tory conference have they not made more of their new mayors? So Andy Street, in the West Midlands th- th- when they had their amazing local election triumph before their cataclysmic general election disaster. Why aren't they reminding people of that? And I asked that because I've just suddenly thought, well, yeah, like they have mayors too.
2: Doing well, Andy, much- Andy Street was there and was reasonably prominent in the conference. There is a st- deep internal debate within the Conservative Party about the whole mayor's agenda, because it so reeks of George Osborne, for one thing, but also the perception is that this has just created an opportunity for predominantly Labour figures to rise and for new political rivals to emerge. I think there's another thing going on as well, which is that Theresa May and maybe other leading Conservatives are thinking very much at the level of the state. You know, the Conservative Party, as it is currently configured at the top is extraordinarily centralist in its thinking, which is partly about Brexit because it's being drawn into into those kind of calculations, but it's partly about we have a generation of, of leaders who, Johnson aside, do not have strong roots in local government do not have connections with some of the historic strengths, actually, of the Conservative Party. So it'll be really interesting to see whether someone like Andy Street could become the kind of source of innovation and of a new kind of Conservative politics in a way that seems incredibly unlikely within Westminster.
1: I think the other thing, though, is is that if you look probably over you know quite some time now, it's actually quite difficult for non-London-centric politicians to succeed. I mean, Theresa May's interesting in this respect is that I don't think she is a London-centric politician and that was her strength for the first... What, for 20 n- minutes. Yeah. Nine months of her premiership where she was, you know, taking the Conservative Party to places they couldn't have dreamt of and then it all fell apart and it, one of the reasons why... It, it fell apart. Obviously, was the manifesto, but the other reason why it fell apart was because of her lack of communication skills, and you get massacred for that in uh, media politics. That is London's
2: London centre. So the other thing that I think that it really reflects that very well is that the um, uh, you know the industrial strategy, which is the the biggest thing that the Conservatives have that speaks to that kind of non London based agenda, has just disappeared almost entirely, and you know, that in a way is so emblematic of the sort of shrinking of the agenda associated with May. That was authentically something that was hers and came out of that neo chamberlainite politics. To move forward strategically in policy terms and sort of in terms of remaking themselves, they really need the industrial strategy to fly. But the politician with whom it's most linked is the one who's now in such a difficult position. If you'd like to
0: read that Legatum Institute report, We will tweet it. We're at tppodcast underscore. There's a really interesting article in this week's London Review of Books by Colin Kidd. We were talking about history. Helen took us back to the Magna Carta. He goes back to the 19th century. But to try and understand how conservative politics shapes the history of democratic politics in this country and other places too. That's available at lrb.co.uk. Next week, we're going to talk about what I think is the big issue today, which is not Theresa May's speech. It's what's happening in Catalonia which really is a massive question. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
2: A few times I have been in studios, I get told off the whole oh, time. now you say I am really, I just start to gyrate as I speak. You're not the worst by any means. We'll do it again. Will, and will you come back again? <laughs> I'd love to come back again, yeah. 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 A straight jacket. Next time, yes, you can. Get a, you need to a calipers or something to hold my arm. No, no, that Hannibal Lecter not that not thing, but without the mask.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or with the mask. <laughs> <That would sighs> you're also. trying trolley. No, just probably, I just said trolley Augustus. Andy Street. <laughs> <laughs>